Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now. But I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. County Morgue. That was the most hands-on program in the U.S. That's why I'm here. Dr. Gallo. Meet Dr. Gray. Ted comes to his top of his class from Harvard. I expect you two will get along quite well. They have the talent. There are 6.5 million people in this city. What we need is less of them and more of these. To trace any cause of death. Only come and join us. Fine. Go be with your dead people, doctor. To the dead. They have the skills. If you could kill anyone, who would you kill? I am interested in what Dr. Gray has to say. Truth is, you're all full of it. With murder. Tomorrow night, just you and me. Doing what? Nothing too exciting. You killed him. Maybe. The point is, how? What is this, a game? Exactly. Yes. How do you know I won't tell? Distinct physical evidence putting you at the crime scene. You're working too hard. I'm okay. Everything's okay now. Who is that? He likes little girls in the worst way. Now. Don't you want to know who's the best? Most of my eyeballs in this. Yes, you are, Ted. The only way to stop them. I'm done. I'm out. Nobody gets out. Is to beat them at their own game. You're losing it, Dr. Gallo. Your fiance is really beautiful. You must be very happy. We're animals. It's our nature to kill. Is there anything that you would like to share with me? Welcome to a special edition of the Really Awful Movies podcast, episode 304, 2008's Pathology. Now, the only voice you'll be hearing on this special edition of the podcast is my own, that's Christopher, as uh, Jeff is feeling a little under the weather, but as indefatigable podcast hosts that we are, we are going to continue to do our best to keep providing you uh, content. So I'm going to channel my best Bill Burr, the uh, comedian whose podcast I believe is the most exemplary solo hosted podcast in existence, at least that I've ever heard. So I'll try and take a page out of his book and see if I can uh, handle this on my own. It's quite the tall order. But uh, I figure I'll give it a shot, and it's kind of funny. I mean, I need uh, Jeff 
for foil typically because his knowledge of horror is i mean really beyond the pale and off the charts and whatever other phrase you want to use he's he's uh, a valued vital contributor to the show and uh, it's a kind of funny just flying blind here without him but i shall do my best to uh, do him justice as well as do justice to the program for our listeners um anyway regarding pathology it's kind of funny again when when you're uh, sitting at home thanks to quarantine related uh, directives from health officials you're you're really at a loss as to what to watch when you have so many options at your disposal i mean i'm a shutter subscriber i'm into prime i've got hulu i've got uh, local Toronto library services, Netflix, any way I can possibly stream content, I can. And yet, uh, finding materials to watch is sometimes kind of, uh, frankly, difficult. So my partner, who I tried to convince to come on the show, but a little bit reticent due to shyness, uh, she was poking around the, uh, the web, came across a Den of Geek article uh, about under-the-radar horrors that maybe people should uh, check out. Apologies if you can hear me typing away, but yeah, Den of Geek, the cult TV movies, games, and comic site, if you're not familiar with it, frequently uh, dives into horror, and they said that this little film directed by Mark Schillerman uh, and starring uh, Milo Ventimiglia and Alyssa Milano, of all people, was one to check out. And by the title alone, I mean pathology, it would be one that would definitely pique my interest. And it's funny when you think about the term uh, pathology, because, I mean, it obviously has a medical connotation, but also as an adverb or adjective to say someone's pathological in their approach to something, let's say a pathological liar with respect to the truth, something that maybe the likes of uh, Hillary Clinton or, or uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, are uh, resolutely familiar with. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, it's a great title, it just jumps right off the page and you're like, okay, pathology, that means forensics and anyone who's as big a police procedural fan as I am, I mean, you gotta love when Law & Order SVU detectives grace the uh, forensic lab with their questions. And what's funny, as it's depicted in, in uh, popular culture, is these guys always have all the answers. Forensic pathologists, within an hour, they're like, oh yeah, cause of death, uh, strangulation, cause of death, arsenic, etc., etc. When in the real world, you know, things aren't so cut and dry. I'm thinking... In Ontario, there was a scandal. This is the province where we live. There was a scandal where a forensic pathologist's work came under fire and a lot of his uh, cases had to be redone and there were serious implications for some of the mistakes that he'd made, uh, in particular as it relates to um, criminal cases involving, I believe, uh, infant shaking or child abuse. So he, his rulings or his uh, reports were called into question, and it was found out that dozens, if not hundreds of them, were improperly done, and it caused quite the scandal. It was quite uh, an interesting phenomenon at the time. It wasn't that long ago. So pathology here, you have a group of residents, and that's medical residents whose specialty is forensic pathology, and there's quite an involved introduction where you have lots of viscera and skulls being opened up and innards being taken out and it's quite an affecting 
uh, introduction because obviously this is uh, the medicalized horror, shall we say, broadly speaking, is something that is that can be, when effectively done, can be very, very impactful. I'm thinking David Cronenberg's De Dead Ringers, where uh, a couple of twin gynecologists develop this um, new and revolutionary piece of technology that is absolutely gruesome, and it's in part designed by an artist. And the way Cronenberg clinically uh, in both senses of the word, depicts their use of it is something very horrific, even in a film that's not typically considered true horror in that sense. Uh, meanwhile, the pendulum can swing to the other side of the equation when you have medical-related horrors, which are the sillier offerings that um, the Really Awful Movies podcast has focused on, and those are the likes of your Dr. Giggles and your Dr. Butcher MD and the hilarious hospital massacre, in which... Uh, you have a, maybe a masked killer, and the science behind it is, let's say, uh, takes second banana to you know the uh, the killings and the, and the the you know the atmosphere and that kind of thing. With pathology, it's quite the opposite. There's a lot of technical talk, and this would exceed much of the arcane, uh, you know, uh, idiomatic medical banter that you'd see on Law & Order SVU. There's lots of chatter about what did the victims in. And the chief pathologist at this L.A. hospital, this is uh, Dr. Quentin Morris, and he oversees this group of uh, wild uh, residents. And at the very beginning, it says at the outset, you have to look back Pathology, forensic pathology is all about looking back and recreating moments that happened just before death. And I'm thinking of this famous, uh, I quite like this uh, quote from the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard about in order to understand life, uh, you ha uh, which is lived forward, you have to examine it backwards. So it's kind of an interesting conceit to have a bunch of people who are consumed with death on a daily basis and have a horror movie surrounding that. So I can't say that I've seen a horror film featuring a forensic pathologist. Uh, hmm. There, there's been uh, morgue uh, morticians, and, uh, and, and I'm thinking the, the 80s horror film Mortuary. There's been that, but there's never, that's more on the body prep side to make it, uh, you know, palatable for open caskets, but nothing on the forensic pathology side. And this group, this team, uh, Teddy Gray, is top of his class at Harvard, and he's uh, Milo Ventimiglia. Anyway, he's quite a stalwart and solid actor, and I said to my partner, he cuts uh, a Pacino-esque figure. I mean, he's he's small, he's very intense, and you, you would be, you know, you wouldn't be, it's not an unkind or inaccurate comparison to say that he's very Pacino-esque, let's say, from The Godfather, uh, that era, even before, when um, Al Pacino's uh, you know, career was uh, still quite nascent. And he's Teddy Gray, and he's this med student, and he's uh, put together with a group of uh, fellow residents and interns. They invite him in, and there's a, somewhat of a bit of a hazing scenario. And the group is very wild. Uh, they indulge in lots of uh, drugs and alcohol, and they're really uh, involved in heavily internecine battles, uh, both uh, for, I guess, one-upmanship, you would say, uh, based upon their knowledge of, uh, of the medical field that they're in. And it's pretty neat, because you got uh, one of the residents, 
uh, soon realizes that the uh, Ventimiglia character is sleeping with his girlfriend, and you have all this uh, battle going on uh, back and forth. Uh, one night, over drinks, of course, where all the best <laughs> ideas and maybe worst are hatched, the group gets really basically shit-faced, and they entertain themselves with a game about who would be able to commit the perfect undetectable murder. So it's funny, I was hoping to have my partner on the podcast here because we are such, you know, engaged uh, true crime buffs. And we really, and we've joked on occasion about how we would commit the perfect, the perfect crime. And we've said at times that maybe we would use, uh, use a cell phone and put it maybe either on a bus so that it goes somewhere that you can create an alibi for or to give it to a friend and have them post to your Instagram account and give them the password so you can bolster your alibi of saying you were, oh, I don't know, in, in Times Square and you take a bunch of shots and then you're, uh, that pings off the cell tower and then voila, you've got your built-in alibi. Meanwhile, you're, uh, you're out doing whatever you're doing. But of course, we don't come to this kind of macabre game with any knowledge of the, the medical profession other than what we see on TV. I have a life sciences background, but I mean, my knowledge of dead bodies uh, comes to me from uh, Italian horror primarily and Lucio Fulci and, uh, you know, and Mario Bava and et al. So it's the, this group is all in when it comes to committing the perfect undetectable murder. And the first one comes when there's a crack house whose doorman, it turns out, is in, is involved in pimp, pimping out some of the... Uh, the uh, principals inside the house. So he's seen as an expendable and he is murdered by um, the uh, Dr. Teddy Gray's rival. And now that Dr. Gallo, the, the leader, blackmails Teddy Gray and says, yeah, because they were both out for the night. And he says, you were there. I've got evidence uh, impl implicating you. And therefore that sets the plot in motion that Teddy is soon uh, forced to engage in this game that the group of residents has already got on the go. And that means they're actually going out and Dexter style killing different, for lack of a better term, undesirables from, uh, from the Los Angeles area. And the part of the game in uh, the undetectable aspect is of course that their medical specialty is all about finding out how someone died. So obviously the killings become very intricate and use a variety of weaponry and uh, poisons and all sorts of manner of killings in order so that they make the the uh, challenge as as intense as possible. I mean, this is this is serious business here. And the movie alludes to that at the beginning with a very, uh, I would say, obvious quote from the Hippocratic Oath, uh, not the do no harm one, but something earlier on, and it uh, name checks a bunch of uh, famous Greek physicians. And so this is what. Uh, propels the narrative. Now, this is a fantastic conceit if, and this is a big if, pathology had decided to focus on two, let's say, uh, evil uh, medical residents, uh, forensic pathologists. Instead, a whole cadre of people is involved in this, and their professors doesn't even get wind of it. So this is where things fall apart here, and this is where the uh, writing team should have maybe figured out something a little more believable because when you have a, a genre and that's based on 
the inherent believability and the cinema verite that comes from, I mean, gruesome morgue footage and lots of science talk, that should be coupled, one should say, with uh, equally realistic scenarios and dialogues. So it's all fine and dandy to have a couple of evil doctors. That's believable. But this entire class, seemingly, of forensic pathologists is, I mean, just... They're, they're gruesome, these people, and uh, it, it you know, beggars belief that one would have this many psychopathic people and in, in one group. And it's always struck me when you see high-profile true crime cases like the Ken and Barbie killers in my, my hometown of uh, Toronto, it's very difficult to find an accomplice who's as psychopathic as you because psychopathic tendencies are so rare that these people rarely encounter one another, save for a few. I mean, you basically have to be involved in uh, maybe some you know, underground uh, Islamic terror group or some other uh, maybe alt-right, uh, whatever, white nationalist group to find people who uh, are like-minded. But even those people uh, would be maybe perhaps reticent about killing anyone and they would just be finding like-minded uh, uh, tortured pathetic souls but here you have seven high functioning if i'm not mistaken uh, pathologists all of whom are so engaged in this plot that it really is r quite ridiculous and this is quite an interesting and difficult challenge when it comes to podcasting when you have movies that start out so impactfully and uh, are unique in their setup and in their mise-en-scene and their approach and then are so ruined by little tiny plot points th that it, it just makes you wonder what they're thinking. These are the hardest movies to critique because there's basically a fantastic gangbusters beginning, there's a wonderful end, and then there's a saggy middle where you have this uh, really quite ridiculous uh, set up with all these people who would never uh, behave this way and never say never but it's something that uh, I was unable to get on board with when I was the uh, more straightforward uh, slasher type elements of the film it's curious when this happens uh, it was a similar experience with Green Inferno which was much better than I thought and which I also watched this week which was quite on board with uh, celebrating, if that's the word you want to use, the Italian horror genre of cannibal movies, uh, which is probably left best left to the to the 80s, and it's it's quite unpalatable in terms of the animal cruelty and, and so forth that the genre became notorious for. Uh, Eli Roth, the director of that one, uh, really recreates that kind of feel, and instead of using anthropologists, decides to focus on a group of do-gooder, save-the-whale types. And this is a great conceit, because you have a potential to be able to satirize um, people who uh, want, want to sort of intrude on other people's territory and bring uh, Western values to people who may not want them. So it brings a, a, about a very interesting discussion potentially about cultural relativism and it's quite well executed in terms of the horror until you get this ridiculous scenes with the drug use and weed that just as a tonal contrast stands out in such stark contraindication to the the seriousness and the grossness that is a typical Italian cannibal film or one that a modern day exemplar it just tonally stood out and left a bad taste in in uh, my mouth and that ruined and otherwise potentially interesting film. So here you have that as well. And you have Alyssa Milano as Ventimiglia's 
girlfriend, a long-suffering, long-distance relationship girlfriend who is a lawyer and living in another city uh, doing, I guess, a uh, uh, articling or something. It's not really explained. And she's really there just to, I, I'm not entirely sure why, but they have some uh, problems in their relationship and uh, the Ventimiglia character is obviously uh, drawn to one of his... Uh, as what happen, frequently happens when you're in university in close quarters with different people, he becomes drawn uh, romantically and sexually to one of the uh, just high-strung, uh, wild, hard-partying uh, colleagues in, instead of his, uh, his girlfriend. So it's kind of a bit of a throwaway role, and uh, she gets top billing, but there's really not, not much she has to do. So all this boils down to who can produce the perfect murder in various... Uh, iterations thereof, and uh, autopsy reports, and uh, I guess hiding some of the demises from the prying eyes of the uh, hospital officials, which is something, I mean, uh, that has happened frequently when you have access to uh, people's medical files and you want to poke around and be evil. Um, I forget the name of the, uh, there was a killer nurse in Ontario, uh, I believe Wetlaufer was her surname, and she went around and killed maybe 20 people in Ontario and, uh, you know, um, you know, buried a lot of uh, her, you know, I mean, the nurses have a, a schedule for injections and she made sure to uh, keep that away from, from her colleagues. So um, regarding pathology, again, fantastic setup and a, a very interesting um, base from which to build a film. But uh, again, uh, mixed reviews and I can understand why. Aggregator Rotten Tomatoes gave it under 50% approval rating, which is uh, totally fair. It just doesn't measure up to the kinds of uh, setup. So it's interesting now, as I'm doing a solo podcast here, to get into the uh, what did I learn aspect of it. And there's no, once again, I don't have Jeff as, as foil, but well, what I learned is there's, you know, uh, an appearance by, you know, genre, genre fans will love this guy, but Larry Drake is in this one, and he's, if you're as big a fan of uh, Darkman as we are, you'll, uh, you'll love that. So you got him in the role, you, you've got, um, again, Alyssa Milano, and uh, as, I guess, the, 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 the authority figure of Dr. Quentin Morris, the lead pathologist and the professor, uh, you know, John Delancey, again, a long, long standing uh, actor, has been around forever. He's, he, had a, he was uh, marvelous uh, in, uh, in Breaking Bad for a couple seasons, a Juilliard school trained uh, actor. He's pretty terrific here as, the, as maybe he's the foil to the Ventimiglia character, but again, he's more of an oblivious uh, professorial type. So lots of really standout performances and, uh, again, the steely, almost uh, determined uh, Ventimiglia, who's really, it's, it's funny when you compare the career trajectories of Alyssa Milano and Ventimiglia, both uh, uh, Italian-Americans, uh, both, you know, uh, came to prominence when they were far younger and then one of whom basically disappeared into B-movie oblivion and currently being a keyboard warrior on Twitter, and that would be Alyssa Milano from her stint on Who's the Boss, obviously, and then Ventimiglia from the, uh, uh, as the boyfriend on Gilmore Girls, which has had a revitalization thanks to adding a few more episodes on Netflix recently, as well as his, I mean, pretty amazing turn as the, uh, um, Pittsburgh home builder in the quite decent for a mainstream uh, 
uh, network show, uh, This Is Us. So he's, he's really like flying high. And this was kind of, I guess, would be post Gilmore and, uh, and pre This Is Us. But it's funny the kind of work he gets versus the uh, vixen, low-grade vampire, nude, scream queen roles that Milano has been uh, reduced to. So that's uh, a few of the things I've learned. So, But it's, it's funny, again, uh, pathology movies, you have so much material to draw from. I mean, uh, bodily materials too. And you can uh, ramp up the gore by virtue of not even having scenes with killing. So the killings here are not particularly gruesome, but instead the uh, director decides to focus on the, the clinical aspects of the uh, the morgue setting. And I, I don't know if that's to its... The, the killings are more on the, on the Dexter side of things, but not even. They're almost an afterthought, and I think it might be because of the um, rather minuscule budget. Even though this is MGM production, I think that uh, this one suffered from a certain uh, certain cheapness. Okay, so the... Uh, Contribute have contributed to the decision to keep everything sort of in-house and so there's the the odd crack den where they track down their vix uh, but really um, there's really not much in the way of uh, Procedural elements because you're meant to and, and invest in um, The voice of reason and he's even though he's being blackmailed there should have been more moral uh, if not ethical agency on his part, especially as a doctor, to put an end to the shenanigans and at least come forward and uh, lay the blame and, and take your chances by saying that it was your antagonist, Dr. Gallo, who had come up with this plot. And uh, they probably, the, the feds might have cut him a deal and uh, maybe made, uh, given him uh, maybe some kind of community service or something. It really does beggar belief that he would become so involved and so captivated by... Um, this uh, grisly business that his colleagues are all totally on board with. So a bunch of things I've learned there. Um, it's, you know, again, um, hopefully when Jeff is back, we'll be able to get, get onto some other films. Like we had originally intended to cover Terror Train as uh, I want to uh, shine a light on a very unheralded Jamie Lee Curtis star that featured, of all people, David Copperfield doing elaborate magic routines for seemingly 20 to 30 minutes of this film's runtime. And uh, I had fond memories of that film and was thinking maybe upon revisiting, uh, I would it would maybe gain in esteem. Uh, I was largely mistaken, but the ending is still quite spectacular. And uh, maybe if Jeff is on board with that, we're going to tackle Terror Train in an upcoming episode. Uh, I was thinking also that it was one of the... Uh, three train movies we've covered, and we've referenced Midnight Meat Train, which is not a train movie per se, but uh, there's Horror Express, the Peter Cushing star, so listeners can check out that one. There's Train to Busan, and um, yeah, and uh, obviously Terror Train, which may come, but it's just an interesting place setting, and that is the, that is the same. The same can be said in pathology, that when you have atmosphere that comes from a sterile... Um, medical uh, place. I mean, the uh, sense of place is almost half the battle in horror. And you have that in confinement in, in, uh, on a train, and you have that hell. You, you have uh, confined, definable, constrained places that make for a really uh, interesting 
you know, typically or should make for really interesting horror. So pathology is kind of an ambitious failure, gets really ludicrous toward the end. Um, there's These people should not have been so heavily on board with this. But again, I hope you're on board with this uh, unique version of the podcast, speaking extemporaneously. Uh, something that I do in my day job, actually, as a business journalist, where I'm frequently tasked, like today, to talk to CEOs and VPs of marketing about product launches and that kind of thing. So it's uh, you have to sort of wing it on occasion, and other times you have a preset set of questions that you could broach. Although Jeff and I are not exactly sticklers when it comes to prep with our notes, it comes with, with varying degrees. Usually, I would say based on the quality of the production. So if it's a movie that we're we feel we have a duty to uh, laud as best we can the likes of some of the Cronenberg classics, then we'll come correct um, with a bunch of notes and, and a bunch of uh, uh, background info. Whereas if it's something silly and, and asinine, the likes of your maybe a Dr. Butcher MD, then we're more likely to just uh, wing in a prayer uh, you know, go with the flow and just see a riff on it. So the two different approaches, maybe, who knows, we'll, we'll take a, a crack at some, you know, insane offering like Sorority House Massacre and put uh, research into it that would be the envy of uh, some, uh, you know, Rhodes Scholar or something. But uh, you never know. You just never know. So apologies for uh, being away for a bit. We had to take a little bit of a break. Looking forward to coming back. And uh, for those who are interested, uh, feel free to pick up a copy of Death by Umbrella, the 100 Weirdest Horror Movie Weapons, and our, uh, a small plug here for our upcoming book, and uh, that is Mine's Bigger Than Yours, the 100 Wackiest Action Movies, and that's coming out via Schiffer Publishing. It's available now for pre-order, and it's for cult action movie fans. So if you love stuff set in the Philippines where people are shooting one another and doing rather underwhelming martial arts, you're going to love this one. We put a lot of work into it. It's a real labor of love, just like the, the horror title. Uh, and this podcast is a labor of love as well. So uh, thanks for indulging me with um, my voice here and my first effort at solo casting. And we shall talk to you soon.